Hey friends, my name is David Gunger and welcome to Undaunted. This episode will focus on reconciliation, specifically through the lens of relationship. Our guest today is a dear friend, an amazing teacher and writer, David Bailey. Can you tell me about the, the time you first met Todd Dethridge? Oh man, so like where's the best place in the world for like a black guy from Richmond, Virginia and a white guy from Arkansas? It'd be like on a plantation in South Carolina. So like, <laughs> so we literally met on a plantation in South Carolina. It was like a Christian leaders gathering, and at this time, this particular Christian leader was trying to um, diversify, you know, the the group of people that's in the circle. And Todd and his wife was like, Judy was like, you know, maybe if you're trying to like diversify the kind of people that are here, maybe you, sh- you know, shouldn't like maybe have it at a plantation, you know, and. And maybe plantations communicate something. And so I didn't know they were having this conversation. And eventually they brought me in and said, hey, Dave, what do you think about it? And like the way that Todd talked about peacemaking and reconciliation, I, I use the word reconciliation, he used the word peacemaking, but we were like saying the same thing. And it was love at first sight. I mean, I really just drawn closer to, to that brother and, and Judy, and it was just really um, great. And then um, he, you know, we just stayed connected, invited me to go um, on the uh, Israel-Palestine trip. And uh, it was really, I was like, man, the way y'all approaching this is a very similar uh, way of uh, pro-people, you know, pro-humans, pro-peacemaking. Uh, what was it about that first trip to Israel and Palestine with Telos that left such a deep impact on your imagination for peacemaking and reconciliation? There's actually a proverb that talks about, like, when you hear one person's case, you know, it sounds true until it's like, cross-examined, you know, and, and what happens, you know, I actually kind of came in very neutral. Um, I didn't really know much about it. I read enough history to know that rarely in history are there like 100% heroes and 100% villains, right? Like, you know, we're always a mixed bag. I mean, theologically, Luther says, um, Santos Peccator, we're both saints and sinners at the same time, right? Even like those who are followers of Jesus, so I kind of also noted about history, but what I appreciated, I kind so I came out to, uh, it, you know, I came out on the trip, kind of neutral and just like, hey, let me just try to understand. And then when I'm talking to the um, Israeli person, I'm like, okay, that makes a lot just sense. Yeah, they're right. They're 100 percent right. Then when I talk to the Palestinian person, I'm like, yeah, right. When I talk to the Muslim or the Jewish or the Christian or the secular, like. Everybody that I talk to, it makes 100% perfect logic from where they stand. And then I'm like, whoa, this is very complicated. You know, like, how do you live in like this, this history that's a shared history, but different perspectives on the history? How do you move forward? And and, and the only way you could move forward is in in a way of like peacemaking. Right. Um, And so that approach, I was like, man, that, that was really it was very educational to me. And that's a very similar approach that, you know, we take an air bond here in the United States to just kind of help to understand if people's narratives and ultimately move towards the practice of peacemaking or the practice of reconciliation. The work of air bonds really come out of my life. I mean, it's come out of, you know, I since I was eight years old, my parents were involved in urban suburban partnerships and really doing like an urban inner city 
ministry and I got a chance to get to know people who um, struggle with addictions. So a lot of the adults, you know, who were like heroes of my church, you know, and, and people I looked up to, you know, when I'm like eight, nine, 10, 11, even 11 years old, you're like, um, you know, brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, it might be backsliding. And you know that they might be dealing with like drug or substance abuse. But then I got a chance to know them as full, fully human, right? I got the chance to know when they weren't addicted and this when they were and when they kind of, and when they would relapse. And I didn't have this language when I was a kid, but they were very humanized, you know? And even though I didn't have anybody in my family who was um, dealing with substance abuse and I grew up in a very stable middle-class like household, um, I got a chance to be family with people who didn't grow up in a stable household. And as an adult who dealt with a lot of trauma and who were trying to like self-medicate, you know, as best as they knew how to. And sometimes they have relapsed and sometimes they, they weren't. And they were people that like love God the whole time. And I just saw the messiness of humanity. Um, but I didn't get it. I didn't know them as a junkie. I didn't know them as a, an addict. I knew them as a whole person who had an addiction. And so then, you know, as I kind of, uh, when my wife and I decided to buy a house, we decided to buy a house in an uh, under-resourced uh, community, you know, that had a high concentration of poverty. And so it was either like high concentration of poverty or working class. Um, and we decided to be a part of a church that, like to actually help plan a church that worshiped and worked with people of a diverse socioeconomic backgrounds. And so... It was one thing for me to kind of commute 25, 30 minutes, you know, a few days a week to go to church growing up. It was another thing for my poor neighbors' problems become my problems because it's our neighborhood. And then I began to see the complexity. So, like, our city, the way our city was designed, they put the city dump in the black part of the neighborhood. They put the city jail in the black part of the city. They, they put... Um, the there are about seven housing projects that would feed into our local high school, and so you got a high concentration of poverty, and so uh, like if I was educated in the same school context that I'm zoned for right now, I wouldn't have the cognitive skill sets to be able to do the kind of work that I do, and these are situations people are born into, and so your zip code can literally determine your unique challenges or your unique opportunities. It determines whether or not you get a military recruiter to your to your high school or you get a college recruiter to your high school. And it was 45 years before they started to build a new school in my neighborhood that I live in. And they started working on the new city jail, renovating the city jail before they started renovating the, 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 uh, the new middle school. And the middle school basically sits uh, at the top of the hill and at the bottom of the hill is the city jail. And so that would never happen in a white neighborhood. And it would never in a white middle-class neighborhood for sure. And so, you know, these are things where I couldn't have seen these uh, things. I mean, like the, but I mean, it's just important to kind of paint the picture to try to help to understand the context in which all this work is coming out of. The, we were in a food desert for a really long time. And like the grocery store uh, turned into a dialysis center and the segregated medical center uh, that 
is uh, like kind of across the street, like a little further down the street, that became a Planned Parenthood. And so like these are whenever we're talking about any of these topics, you know, these are all topics that are coming out of a, a community of practice, uh, coming out of like seeing the way that a lot of poor brothers and sisters um, have to struggle and navigate through systems and don't have the tools to even navigate through these systems um, in ways that if you're like middle class, if you're educated, if you're white or white passing, um, you have different tools that society allows you to be able to navigate through. You talked about that in peacemaking, you're trying to humanize all these different stories. However, in today's view of justice, is it actually just to humanize those who perpetrate systems of injustice? Or how do you how do you balance that? This is my biggest takeaway from when I was over on the Israel-Palestine trip. I got a chance to talk to Christians, uh, people who were Jewish um, and of faith and Muslim faith. And what I noticed was that both in Judaism, Christianity and Islam, they say you should love God and you should love your family. And Christian theology was to love your enemy. Both kind of this like both Jewish and um, uh, Christian faith, this is this notion of like a Mago day of like understanding the image of God, like this this value that is happening. And we're reminded, like whether the person is your neighbor, they, they bear the image of God and are worthy of a dignity and love and humanization. Uh, whether the person is your family, your neighbor, or your enemy, like there's just no way. And, and, and even if they're poor, we're all just reminded throughout scriptures that like this is something that we have to be reminded. Like, like nobody has to be taught to be nice to the prettiest girl in the uh, school or or the richest person in the uh, room. But you always got to, you know, be taught to care and give honor to the person who might not be as attractive for whatever reason or uh, who might be the poorest person. And these are things that these are character building things that have to be taught and learned. And I, these are all the principles. I mean, this is all the like foundation of peacemaking. Yeah, at least from a from a, a Christian theological perspective. How do I humanize a white supremacist or how do I humanize might be a police officer that did something that is horrific and an injustice? Is it is it right to humanize them or how do you approach that within your work of reconciliation? I mean, I think it's always right to humanize all people. Right. Like, I mean, I, I just I can't think of a scenario where dehumanizing is a is a good thing. You know, uh, matter of fact, dehumanizing people is a very dangerous thing. We could do some really horrible things. Uh, it's at the moment that we start dehumanizing people. So uh, specifically, like, I mean, the way whenever I get up and talk to, to folks, I'm like always trying to think about like, what if that KKK member is like in the audience? And I'm trying to um, kind of cast a vision of the kingdom of God and reconciliation and honor and image of God and people in a way and talk about it in a way that there's like an invitation for somebody to say, you know what, you know, a lot of KKK folks, I mean, like it's a very, they, they believe they're being Christian. And, um, and so I'm like, I want them to kind of like have the opportunity to say, you know what, I think maybe I need to rethink this. You know, maybe I might not be doing this right, you know? And I had this opportunity. I was speaking to this audience one time and, you know, I try to like meet and talk to people before I, um, get up and speak and this guy was a little cold and long story short this guy was a part of the uh he was the president of the sons of the confederacy and he kind of gets in and says the the um 
the soft will rise again, you know, guy. And he he was originally he had his arms folded when he was talking and kind of like scowling at me. I just kind of knows that energy. And then, um, you know, I would talk a little bit, get him to do some dialogue within um, some small groups. And um, and and then, you know, I talked some more and dialogue. And he was matched up with a, a black guy who was a police chief. And they got a chance to talk. And I got a chance to hear a little bit about the conversation. And he said, man, you know, things were good about race up until, um, you know, all of this, you know, recent hoopla. But you know what? I never had a problem with used people, you know, and he kind of realized he said the wrong thing. And he was like, and so the police officer who, well, actually the police chief who was African-American said, well, what, you know, what do you mean by you people? He said, well, you know, I didn't have any problem with like black folks. You know, I, I grew up poor. And, you know, and I was a poorest kid and I, people, folks, you know, um, picked on me cause I was a poor, poor kid. And, and so then the, the police chief said, you know what, I grew up poor too. And that's something that we share in common together, you know, and that was like, it was really hard, you know, really growing up poor together. And I could share that w- experience with you. And then he said, but like this question, like, have you ever thought about what it's like being poor and black also? And the guy was like, man, I never thought about that before. And he was like, tell me about it. And they got a chance to talk about it. And they got a chance to have uh, a conversation. And, and over the night, over the evening of my kind of di- doing a dialogue and speaking with them, this group of people, he, you know, he, he was a lot more open to what was being talked about. So I think there's a huge thing of um, being able to humanize people. And even most recently, we did a, um, a trip to the South with um, a whole police force, you know, from, from all the way from the police chief down to folks who were on the beat and everybody in between. And it was really great for me as a civilian who I, I have not had a, I don't have a hostile disposition towards police officers. I mean, I've had experiences as a black man, but I've, um, you know, my first image of a police officer, my uncle, and I didn't really from, from zero to 12, I, I never had any kind of negative interaction. I'm thinking about police officers. I'm immediately thinking about my uncle. And I was 12 when I had my first negative interaction. So, you know, I kind of been able to take it, you know, just not have an overall disposition in a way that's negative. And so, but what I didn't realize, like until I was on the bus with, uh, I don't know, 25, 30 officers, and I'm just in their world, it was so humanizing for like, like as a civilian, I'm like, it's almost like when they put the uniform on, it's like they become like superheroes or something like that, or just like, it's like invincible. But but I got a chance to hear their vulnerabilities, you know, over a week of traveling with those brothers. And, and, and it was a, um, a one woman police officer. And I got a chance to hear their vulnerabilities, their fears. And they were like humanized to me in a way that was just so profound, you know, in ways that I didn't know or think about. And, that's always a gift. That's a gift when you get a chance to do that. You talked about the ability to share vulnerability and there was a proximity. There was a closeness there to where you don't normally get to share that space. Can you talk about a little bit of your own work and how important proximity and being able to share life in your own neighborhood has been to you? And do you have any stories of what that work has looked like? Yeah, I mean, so 
I think that, again, proximity really comes out of like really strong Christian theology. This is notion that God came in a form of human. It's called the incarnation. And so um, the way that this particular Bible translated by the name of Eugene Peterson says that they're like, uh, God came down and moved into the neighborhood. And so this idea of proximity is a really, um, really important, you know, uh, this idea of incarnation, which look like to kind of be close and kind of walk in the neighborhood, you know, um, I think it's really important to both Christian theology and peacemaking practice. And so I'll give the negative perspective and I give you the positive side of it. There's this proverb that says when I, when they were far away, I thought they were a demon. Uh, when they got closer, I thought they were animal. When they got closer, I saw they were human. And when we got face to face, I wrote, I remember they were my, my kin. And that was, that's an African proverb that, you know, the closer we get to, we get a chance to see, you know, how we're part of the human family. But then my friend Jason Kane says it this way, that um, proximity begets empathy and empathy allows unity to be possible. And so this has been really, I mean, really, really informed a lot of our work. Um, you know, uh, one of the big things that I've done over the years was this urban doxology songwriting internship. I did it for about 10 years. And we got young people, 18 to 25, studying theology, justice, reconciliation, all different types of walks of life. Some poor, some some wealthy, some born in the United States, other ones um, were foreign born. Um, and, um, and all different type of racial groups and they're studying theology, justice, recreation, urban context. Um, instead of writing papers, they write worship songs and those worship songs become what we sing in our congregation. So they create together and it's amazing. Like they're formed and shaped for the rest of their lives. And so I think like getting at proximity, working on something together, learning together, relating together is very transformative. And, um, you know, at Arabon, we do that stuff with adults now. And so there was a church that we work with. I was the first black person to preach in that church in 160 years. And, and I found out a few years later, there were a few people that were upset about that. Well, we worked with, we worked with this church for like two years and just doing a lot of principles that we, 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 we do at Arabon. And I would say probably about year four, year five, you know, the church went through a transformation and they realized there was an African-American church that you literally had to pass by in order to um, get to their church and they never had, did anything in relationship with them. So they decided to use one of our study series called Race, Class, the Kingdom of God to do that study series together. They decided to um, work on creating some um, Lenten and some Advent devotionals together. So they created together and then the pandemic happened and because they were working together, they said, Oh man, there's some people that are really hurting in our community. So they started to like do some food service for people and some aid and some people in the community during the pandemic. And then when the kind of 2020 racial riots and, and upheaval kind of happened, they had a relationship with both the police, the, the police chief in a local community and the folks who, um, were kind of lead protesters and so they were able to be bridge builders and peacemakers in the midst of this together as a black congregation and as a white congregation as a black pastor and a white pastor uh and, and really help to make peace in the midst of this and so there's a saying that like if you stay ready you have to get ready and and that's kind of what what they did you know david i love that story um 
one of the things that kind of sparked my imagination with that is when when we talk about relationships and specifically with relationships that are diverse, if you're coming from a, a white space or a, or a place where you're going, I, I want to be, you know, good hearted. I want to be friends with with people of color. I want to be friends. I want to you know work for racial reconciliation, but they don't know where to start. Sometimes tokenism can take place even with the best intentions where they think I'm going to go, I'm going to try to get a black friend or I'm going to try to meet someone. And, and it's always, there's like a clunkiness to that, even though it's, it might be in a good intention. And what I love that you shared that inspired me was there was, there was a, an invitation to create together. Like creativity was the thing that it not only was like, a, it wasn't a one way savior type of relationship. It wasn't coming in saying, um, I just need to, you know, make this, this justice thing happen. It was, it was actually no seeing, um, an invitation for, for dignity and for creativity, which is so powerful. Do you find that often creativity is the springboard for a lot of your work? Yeah. I mean, there are three things when we talk about being a reconciling community. Um, there are three things that we, are working for organizations, institutions, communities to have as a practice when um, we finish working with them. Number one is to to see the um, practice of of uh, reconciliation as spiritual formation or as um, something that is like key to our Christian formation identity. The second thing is to help people understand their context. And the third thing we have them do is to creatively problem solve, right? And, and to, to add creativity and like culture making to the work that they do. It's something to really understand that like race was centuries in the making and people were like creatively planning on doing evil and, and, and being successful at it. And we're only like decades away from a corrective course. But we haven't been as creative and as like proactive and trying to do good trying to bring healing, trying to bring repair. And so the more that we can kind of like creatively problem solve, and it moves beyond just having conversations, but to actually like say like, hey, let's, let's try to work together. And here's the thing I would really encourage white brothers and sisters to do is to not just say, hey, can you come to my thing? But can you actually intentionally go to somebody else's thing to observe, to listen, and look how to serve and ways that they find is helpful. Cause sometimes you can have ideas of what you think is helpful, but people will let you know if you're helpful or not and how you can be helpful. And 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 try to apply some creativity out of a place of like as a servant and you know, not as um a person with all the answers. One of our principles and practices of peacemaking is centering the leadership of those who are most affected by that injustice. So if people have a history of being marginalized or people have a history of um, facing that injustice, instead of just coming from a place of privilege with good intentions and trying to lead it, how do you come to serve? Which is a different type of imagination, and it takes on a different form of creativity. So for those who want to learn more about your work and how to be someone that is an ally and a friend and learn about how they can actually engage within their own communities. Yeah, so I would say definitely go on our website, arabon.com. It's A-R-R-A-B as a boy, O-N.com, arabon.com. Uh, sign up on our newsletter. 
we do not send out spammy newsletters. We actually send out very helpful things. So um, one uh, piece of communication would be like resources. And the second one would be kind of a reflection that actually can kind of help you to think a lot deeper and a little more grounded spiritually. So I'll say that's one way to like really stay connected. Um, and then we are Airbond is where our social media handles are. David Bailey, thank you for joining us today, inspiring us, and teaching us. Undaunted is produced by David Gunger and David Cataba. It's executive produced by Gregory Cleo. If you're interested in learning more about Telos, go to the telosgroup.org. Music today from The Brilliance, John Arndt, Brennan Smiley, and the Good Shepherd Music Collective. My name is David Gunger. I hope that you'll stay curious. Thank you.